I don't even remember how I start usually. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. Here, here we go. You can really understand the value and reputation of an institution when you look at what is said about it by its alumni, by its current students, because that is where the next generation of students are drawing their perceptions from. Not an advertisement, not an, not an article in the New York Times. They're going on Reddit or College Confidential or an influencer's Instagram comments and saying, what's it like here? What did you think? What did you value? And that is where the value of a college education for an individual university is showing up. Hello, Lauren. Are you ready for another episode of Campus Confidential? I am ready. How are you today, Kelsey? You know, I am a little all over the place today, but hmm. feeling pretty good about another episode. Yeah? Why are you all over the place? Well, at the time we're recording this, it feels like end of summer, school starting, <laughs> football season is big in our house. Just a lot of a lot happening. Yeah, I get it. I get it. <laughs> so why don't you tell our audience who we have for our guest today? Dr. Liz Gross is, well, I'll use her word. She described herself as an education entrepreneur, which I just loved. It's so full of imagery and sort of a way to think about what that really means. She started her career in higher education. She got a doctorate, in fact, in higher education, then pivoted to, I'm not going to say outside of higher ed, because as our listeners will hear, she still considers herself a higher ed person. She merely left campus. She started a media strategy company, a social listening company. She um, uh, has been at higher education for well over 15 years, five years at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee in uh, student affairs, housing and, and residence life marketing, then went on to a director role at another Wisconsin campus. Uh, she was a strategist for um, a group called the Great Lakes Higher Education Corporation, and now for five years has been CEO of Campus Sonar, which is part of this larger group I just mentioned. Um, she um, is well ensconced into the social media world. She helps explain what social listening is, which was new to me, and she's a really sought-after speaker, writer, blogger, presenter around the country. So I think our our uh, our listeners are in for a treat. I agree. And I loved how she talked about psychological safety for her staff. We dig into that a little bit. Her human experience first for driving the business outcomes. And I love the nugget that she didn't think she was very visionary. But in the end, I think we got a clear vision from oh, her. Oh, yeah. Very visionary. Yeah. And she talked a lot about how to create cultures for your staff that are transparent and authentic, things you can do so that people feel safe and, uh, and part of the team. I think that's really, really valuable insight. Awesome, let's jump right into it. Here 
we are for another episode of Campus Confidential. And today's guest is Dr. Liz Gross from Campus Sonar. Hi, Liz. Hi, Kelsey and Lauren. Excited to be here. We're we are happy excited to have, you. to have you. Yeah. It's been a while since we've recorded, so I think we're excited to be back in conversation. So Liz, let's kick us off with uh, our standard question. Tell us how you share your what you do for a living with a rideshare driver. So if I am feeling awake and talkative and trustworthy of the person whose car I'm in, the answer would be honest. And I would say I help colleges and universities serve students better by providing insights from what people talk about online. And if you're not feeling trustworthy and <laughs> as someone who has most of their ride shares as a woman alone in a strange city, often late at night, I might just say, I run a marketing agency. Because mm. if I say higher ed and they have my name and they know it's social, it's very easy to find me on the internet. So have you had someone stalk you before? Not to my knowledge, but I have learned to be more cautious than maybe my gut, my Midwestern gut tells me I should be when I'm in strange cities. But yeah, when I'm with someone who I actually want to understand the conversation, and I've had some great rideshare conversations. I connected on LinkedIn with someone in a rideshare once as I was exiting to get to the airport. I will talk about how we use um, social media and online conversations as an always on focus group to help colleges and universities better connect with and serve their audiences. And then that generally goes in a lot of interesting directions. Do, do most people, including rideshare drivers, know what you mean? Did you say online listening in your first description? Do people know what that means? I probably said like providing insights from what people talk oh. about online. Um, no, most people don't. So then I'll say market research, but the data is what we all produce online when we're talking about our lives and or complaining or connecting with people. And then that starts to make sense. And people either get really excited about the possibilities of that or really scared that like we somehow have access to people's text messages and DMs, which is not true. So, but, but when I say social listening, no one knows what that means. Do you means. have a fake Instagram in case they ask for your, for your <laughs> handle or something? I will go on record for the first time as saying I do not have a Finsta. Oh, a no. Finsta, yeah. So Liz, I I have to assume well, we know you didn't start in social listening. So take us back to kind of where this all began, the start of your journey, maybe who you were as a college student. Yeah. Um, so interestingly enough, I think I would have answered this question differently if you would have asked me a year ago. But this spring, I went back to my alma mater, um, part for work and part for personal. And one of the things I got to do was meet with um, someone who works there now, who worked there when I was a student uh, almost 20 years ago, and advised one of the student organizations that I was involved with. And she helped me remember some things I had completely forgotten about college. So... When I was in college, um, I was academically successful, but I wasn't seeking out rigor in that experience. I was really looking for experiential learning or something that applied to what I could do in the real world. So I graduated with a really high GPA. I had the Chancellor's Leadership Award, but I also graduated with the bare minimum of credits and like just did what I needed to do to get out. And I spent more of my time being extremely involved on campus. And this was where that advisor really helped me remember some of the things that I did. So 
I was an RA for three years. I lived on campus all four years. So sophomore through senior year, I was an RA. And I also had lots of part-time jobs. In addition to that, when I was allowed to, I worked for a temp service. I did economic research in the business department. Um, and I had a bunch of different jobs over the summer. Like I was always wanting to make sure I was doing something and had money to like support the fun part of college. And then I also held leadership positions in multiple student organizations. And that's where this advisor helped me remember what that looked like. I just knew I was co-president of an organization with my best friend, but I didn't remember what that actually played out. And she reminded me, she goes, you and Abe, that was his name, you two decided you wanted to plan a regional conference for your national student organization with three months notice. And I told you, you couldn't do it and you did it anyway, all by yourselves. <laughs> and I don't remember much of that, but she helped me fill in the gaps. Uh, so it really involved. Um, and unsurprisingly, I ended up going into student affairs after that. But for me, college was all about like figuring out what I was good at and who I was as a person. I majored in what I think were really practical things. I was in college from 2000 to 2004, and I was an interpersonal communication major, which everyone thought was a non-major thing, but it served me very, very well. And I minored in technology and new media arts. So looking at that, bringing me into work that focuses on online conversation intelligence makes a lot of sense, but I never would have known that in 2000. And I keep reminding myself, when I graduated, I was, it was at the time where you needed an invite to get a Gmail address because that was brand new. Facebook only existed on like 12 college campuses at the point that I graduated. And I grew up with like MySpace and ICQ as my online network. So everything I've experienced with what we call social media today has all been through the lens of a young adult or mid-career professional. And I think that's really informed kind of what brought me to Campus Sonar and what I do. It's just really neat timing and uh, coincidence of what I ended up studying, I think. But you, but you didn't, when you graduated, you didn't go right into that. You went into student affairs, right? So you've circled back in some ways to those things that were clearly maybe early loves or early interests for you, right? Can you talk yeah. about then with that kind of uh, innovation in that space happening for you with technology and, and social media, Talk about that decision then to go into higher education administration. So when I was a junior, because I was really involved and I had these mentors who had student affairs master's degrees, mm. I was convinced I was just going to go straight into a student affairs master's program. I did all the research. I took the GRE. I visited some campuses out of state. And then I completely changed my mind, set up a different path for senior year. Um, and then the week of graduation quit that, decided I should do something else and had to open up a bunch of other opportunities. So it gave me a year to, to work adjacent and through the connection of my um, honor society advisor, who was also my favorite professor and my academic advisor, I found a job at the National Communication Association mm -hmm. in Washington, mm -hmm. DC, where I was the coordinator of their student organizations. So the president mm -hmm. of the Honor Society yeah. coordinated all of the Honor Society chapters, which was a really great experience and kept me connected to higher ed. Mm -hmm. But while I was there working in an office in DuPont Circle, I really missed being on campus and working with students directly. I only got to see the honor students like 12 days a year at different regional conferences. So I looked back into, okay, my plan of going straight into these two-year assistantship-driven graduate programs didn't work. 
what could work. And again, I feel like it was a bit of a, a coincidence or a happy accident. There was a job opening at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee that I was very interested. That was in housing, where I already had three years of paraprofessional experience, but focused more on marketing, which I was starting to do at the association. And Marquette University had recently started a student affairs graduate program that um, was doable part-time. They didn't have many people doing it part-time, but it was doable part-time. And I applied to both things, thinking... If this works, I'm going to go be in Milwaukee. And somehow both of them happened right at the same time. And I left DC less than a year after I got there, moved back to Wisconsin and ended up staying in that role at UW Milwaukee for five and a half years. So I completed my master's degree in college student personnel at Marquette during that time. Also started my PhD in higher administration and leadership during that time. And UW-Milwaukee was really involved in ACPA and Akuhawai and NASPA, so really got me connected to the rest of the profession, but also helped me understand where marketing fit in. And this is also, so that job was 2005 to 2010. That's when social media as a professional thing started to happen. So the last two or three years of my time at UW-Milwaukee, I was integrating social into the work that we did in housing, but also consulting for the central campus. I was starting to write about social media. Um, TJ Logan, one of your former guests, and I wrote about it in the talking stick, like in 2008 <laughs> or 2009. Um, and I started building my personal and professional network largely on Twitter at that point in time. So that professional experience plus the network I was building really set the stage for everything I would do after that. Dropped the MySpace, moved to Facebook. <laughs> yes, Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. And for a moment, anything I could be on, I'm a little bit more judicious with my time now. Yeah. <laughs> so when you started to do the social media components, was that your idea? Was the school driving it? How did that come about for you to be working on? It was 100% mine. Um, I... Want, like So University Housing at UW-Milwaukee was really growing at that time. We had had the same 2,700-bed housing complex for decades, and enrollment was growing. So we were opening up new uh, buildings. There was always that you know rush at the end of the year when, or the beginning of the year when people didn't know if they'd have housing or not. And it was really needed first as a customer service tool. So I started using Facebook and Twitter to help people who were complaining about what was going on in housing. I also used it to connect with RAs. Part of my job was managing the program resource center for RAs. And we had so many of them in this 2,700 bed complex that connecting with them on social, Facebook at that time, was a much better idea than me working 15 hour days so I could see them all <laughs> as they came in and out. Um, and then I started pushing for the university itself to have a Twitter account to start thinking about things. And I was doing social listening with like paper clips and duct tape in 2008, 2009. I was pulling Twitter into an RSS feed and I, I came across the a presentation I gave in 2009 talking about the growth of our engagement and connections on social at that time. It was very much um, me driving it at UW-Milwaukee, but there were people across the country doing the same thing on their campuses. And that was where my Twitter connections professionally uh, mattered a lot. So we launched you know, a student blogging program. I, I did a lot of work with students at the center before 2010, which 
was pretty unheard of at that point. But I also have a history of being able to do things without necessarily asking permission for them in my jobs. So I just did it and then showed people what was happening. So, so Liz, what is social listening and why should universities or university leaders know what that is and care about it? Yeah. So I define social listening as finding, analyzing, and transcribing everything that is of interest to you on the public social web and drawing insights from it that help you answer questions, solve problems, serve people. So um, social listening is largely done with an enterprise level software tool that will allow you to search for these conversations that matter to you across thousands and thousands of sources. So the largest sources are Twitter, which I don't care what it's called when this airs, I'm going to call it Twitter. <laughs> Twitter <laughs> X. Yeah. What we're talking, I'm, I'm, I'm holding on to the past there. Uh, you know, Twitter, Reddit, huge source of information, college confidential forums, Instagram, some parts of Facebook, blogs, news. There's so Barstool. much being said online. <laughs> Barstool? Yes. Yeah. Uh, there's so much being said online about how people are experiencing life moments, their interaction with brands. Um, and like the questions they have about society, a product, a problem, it, you can gather all of that and essentially use it as an always on online focus group to better understand an audience or where a market is moving. And I think that's important. So this is software which scans all these sites, these platforms, and harvests information so you understand from a data-driven perspective. Tell me if I'm right here. Data-driven perspective, sort of what the mood or the sentiment or the trends or the chatter is around about your university, or maybe not even about the university, but around things adjacent to it. Is that right? Exactly. The software okay. is required to do the work, but yeah. you don't get to the what are the trends or what matters unless you have humans who understand the context, the problem, the, the tech, and put that all together. What's an example, though? I can imagine in scandalous cases, you'd really want to know what's going on. And that's where I have typically in my administrative career been, been called, hey, they're talking about this. You got to clean this up. But what are some more beneficial ways that universities or campus leaders should be paying attention to that, just so I understand or we understand how that has applied yeah, absolutely. So, you know, crisis monitoring and understanding emerging issues, to your point, cherry on the top, but also the thing that people <laughs> think about first. Um, when we're working with institutions at Campus Sonar who are using social listening strategically, they are trying to answer questions like, where are our students talking about us and mm. what are they discussing that we are not privy to that mm. we could use to push them through an enrollment funnel or answer their questions at the moment they have them versus when they bother to ask us if they ask us 30, 45 days later? Or how do we understand the comparative set for the student's eyes of what matters to them? And how is that different from our traditional first-year student to the potential mid-career graduate student who's looking for a master's degree in the health professions? And then that can take you into what are people in the health professions talking about in terms of desires for career advancement, additional learning, things that they're not getting training for on the job to help inform actual program development be a big thing. And then I could go on and on and on, but I'll cut this at three yeah. things. <laughs> um, I recently spoke with a group of presidents uh, this summer about the concept of, you know, everyone is saying people aren't 
um, aren't trusting higher ed. They don't see the value in higher education. The ROI is a big issue. And you can really understand the value and reputation of an institution when you look at what is said about it by its alumni, by its current students, because that is where the next generation of students are drawing their perceptions from. Not an advertisement, not an, not an article in the New York Times. They're going on Reddit or College Confidential or an influencer's Instagram comments and saying, what's it like here? What did you think? What did you value? And that is where the value of a college education for an individual university is showing up. So understanding that, seeing where you can leverage and amplify alumni stories of value and catch the things that people are complaining about and start to make real changes on campus can be a huge, huge uh, value add because those are things people aren't going to answer in surveys or if they do, they're going to tell you 10 years too late. So let's back up to you're creating this social listening piece, you're working on your doctorate, doing all these things that seem ahead of the time, talking about it. And then this conversation you and Lauren, you were just having is like, fast forward to today. So what moves you from that space that you were in to what's the next step? Like, how do you go from, I'm helping one school listen and think about things differently to where do you go next? Yeah. Uh, so this is where my like, career left turn comes. So after UW-Milwaukee, I spent two years at the University of Wisconsin-Waukesha, which is a two-year community college where I ran their marketing communications department. Um, social listening and social media was core to our strategy there. But where I really started to think about things differently was where I had the opportunity to move beyond one campus, one impact. And I made the choice after being asked multiple times to leave campus-based employment and go work for Great Lakes Educational Loan Services, which is a student loan servicer, to build their social media program from scratch. They had literally nothing. All they knew was they had 8 million current or recent college students that they needed to build trust with so that they were willing to ask for help with a student loan when they needed it. And we could keep them on the right track with a variety of, of federal programs. And, and what year was this, Liz? That was December of 2012. 12. Okay. And so were most organizations still pretty early in the, I'm trying to get a sense about where social media was at the time, contextually. Yeah, there were, I think there was one or two people in higher education mm. who had the title like social media director mm. so at that days. point in time. I had recently authored a personal blog post that said why I will never be a social media director because I didn't <laughs> think colleges were actually going to invest in it. So I left campus because there was an organization that was hired adjacent willing to invest in social media and they didn't have any precon preconceived notions of what it should look like. They had this goal, which was build trust and make sure we're connecting with people instead of them, you know, just graduating and going off into the ether. And then we end up having to trace, chase them down. Right. And they had budget for it and they were willing to hire someone who would tell them what to do instead of be told what to do. And that appeals to me. <laughs> A lot. <laughs> uh, so I took that job in December of 2012. And in 2013, it was really building out the strategy, figuring out what I wanted to do. And we always had a two-pronged strategy. There was what everyone tends to think of when you think of social media, which is the content creation 
and the engaging with people. But social listening was a part of it from day one. And I walked in saying, I need enterprise level social listening stuff, software to understand this conversation. And it was stuff that in 2010, 2011, campuses were not investing in. Nobody thought that this was useful. Uh, so over the course of three or four years, I went through three or four social listening platforms to try and figure out what was best on the market, what's the best way to do it. And I had a really tough problem to solve right away because the name of this company was Great Blakes. That means a lot of things mm -hmm. <laughs> other than student loans. Mm -hmm. And I had to learn context and how to proactively find people talking about their issues. And over the course of about three years built this program. So it not only was supporting proactive customer service, and we consistently had the best customer service ratings in the industry. And I, I believe we were a part of it. Um, our social media team was a part of it. We also used it for crisis communication, emerging issues, understanding. We avoided an incredibly expensive, potentially reputationally damaging event because of what we could do within 24 hours in social listening and watched it impact a competitor differently. We used it for competitive intelligence had all of these ways I could use it in the student loan industry. Um, but I really could see then, like, here's what I would have done if I was on campus and I had these tools and I had these resources. So in 2016, I started writing and speaking and talking to the people I had stayed in touch with on campus about what they could be doing differently. And that's really where I pivoted to I want to make sure higher ed is using social listening to rebuild the public's trust and build better relationships with their audience. Making the move from higher ed to higher ed adjacent, any regrets through that process when you did it? Any lessons learned? Maybe lessons learned is a better way to say it than regrets. Any lessons learned? Maybe something you would have done differently? Um, no one's ever asked me that question, Kelsey. <laughs> I like being the first. I've had adjacent. Um, so I'll say one thing I'm glad I did was I made it clear to myself and my employer up front that I am a higher education professional. And no matter where I work, I am going to be connected to higher education. So I continued going to higher ed conferences, presenting at higher ed conferences on their dime often because I told them that was important to me as a professional. So People will say, oh, when did you leave higher ed? I never left higher ed. I left campus. And for some reason, I made that clear in the job interview that that was going to be the case for me. And that was really important. Um, I think maybe, maybe a lesson learned is I, because I was in a larger company, and yes, they, they gave me creativity, they gave me budget. It was all, it's also a very compliance-focused company. It works in financial services. I asked permission for the first few years, a lot of times. Um, and even into the, the creation of Campus Sonar a little bit, when I should have been presenting a vision mm. and seeing if they'd come along with me. I think anyone who looks at you know, the last 10 years of my career will be like, oh no, you absolutely forged your path. It, it could have been faster. It could have been more innovative if I wasn't looking for approval at times when I felt I needed it, but I looking back in retrospect, really didn't. I just needed to lean into my expertise. Two really wonderful insights. I love this notion because, of course, Kelsey and I have made the same kind of transition and I think believe and feel the same way about our roles. I'm still a higher ed guy. I'm, I 
sometimes say I'm bullish on it. I want to stay connected to it. That said, it is a change, right? There's a there's a shift in some of the context changes. And I love your point about not asking permission, maybe creating a vision, which is in some ways the support comes and that's that's permission. Do you think that that's different? Um, I'm going to say for the purposes of illustration or outside of higher ed versus or off campus versus on campus, that permission versus vision kind of notion. Do you do you think that's different? I think it's a lot harder to do on campus uh, because of bureaucracy and, you know, adherence to the org chart and different interpretations of what shared governance means for different parts of the organization. I don't think it's impossible. I've, I've seen people be able to advance innovative visions on campus, but um, unless folks are getting really solid leadership development, whether internally or externally, I think there is a, a default on campus to do your job and then prove you can do the next job before we'll maybe give you that next mm-hmm. job versus here's the outcome we need what's the best way to achieve that outcome? Mm-hmm. And I think if we did more of the latter, there'd be mm-hmm. more of an opportunity for people to support a vision. But now in my work with campuses on, on a regular basis, sometimes the hardest thing is getting them to articulate what their goals are and what they're actually trying to achieve versus keeping the lights on and just doing more than they did last mm-hmm. year. And and just one little follow-up too, how has being uh, a higher education professional helped you in this kind of role, do you think, versus folks who maybe don't have that kind of background or that academic uh, training? Yeah. So I have now accepted the fact that I am an entrepreneur in higher education and have been for the last six years or so. And higher education taught me to be very mission and vision focused um, very attuned to people. So that's, that's one thing that I don't know how many other industries do this, but when you start in higher ed and in student affairs and particularly in housing, you are taught to be a good supervisor and manager from day one. Cause I, I walked onto campus as a 23 year old and I think I had 11 direct reports. And I had to do well <laughs> and do that well. So I became um, a, a good leader of people early on. And I've continued to try and push myself and get better. But I think when when you look at you know the entrepreneurship space industry agnostic, it's often very much like growth money ROI focused. And I've been much more focused on how do I leverage the talents of people in an environment that they want to be in to achieve outcomes that serve the greater good and then trust that the money and the ROI and everything is going to follow. And that's a very different path for yeah, an entrepreneur. Great paradigm shift. Yeah. And I, I, I think I can give it to higher ed and you know my work experiences, but also particularly my doc program that really made me think that way. That makes me wonder what your leadership style is now. So take us quickly. You were doing social listening, you're working with the loan company. How do you get from that role to being the CEO of Campus Sonar? Yeah. So um, I made up a new job for myself after a few years um, when I became the market research manager for the student loan company, um, which eventually included supporting their new business development initiative. So I would look at what was going through their 
um, new business development stage gate process and do audience and market research for them with a small team and some contractors. And social listening was part of the way that we did that. And then after an amazing conference presentation at the American Marketing Association Symposium for the Marketing of Higher Education, longest conference name ever. It's like uh, titles in higher education. Right? How long can yeah. we make it? <laughs> after an amazing, like good hearted co conference presentation in November of 2016, where I was trying to just teach everybody to do what I thought they could do in, in social listening, I realized there was a big gap. Um, the room was packed um standing room only and the big line to talk to me and my co-presenter afterwards was all about the value people saw from this approach and how much higher education needed it and then all of the excuses why they wouldn't be able to do it on their campus and these excuses were everyone from a social media manager to like associate vice chancellors of marketing and i uh, started complaining about that at work and the person i complained to was the new business development manager and he looked me right in the eye and he said, did you see that? Did you just tell me that there is a market problem and a market need that you think you can solve? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I guess I did. So I thought about that for a little bit and ultimately decided that I didn't want to quit my job and go do this on my own, but I wanted to build something sustainable with some resources behind me. I also didn't know how to be an entrepreneur. I didn't know any of that sort of stuff. So I pitched the company that at the time was called Great Lakes. I pitched their parent company on creating a brand new business with a brand new identity to serve a brand new part of higher education that they'd never served before that ultimately became Campus Sonar. So I built a business within a business that is now a separate division of a for-profit affiliate of that company that has renamed Ascendium Education Group. And uh, every step of the way, just kind of figured out what it should look like because they had never done this before either. They'd never had an employee go start a new division. So that I call it entrepreneurship. It was a journey of intrapreneurship. Um, and since 2017, we've been figuring out how we can best serve the marketplace. And we've really dialed in over the last two or three years into ways we can support high level strategic goals and long-term partnership with campuses from that human centric approach. So you asked about leadership style in there. Like I'm very, I'm very human centered. Um, I'm in the middle of skip level meetings this week and last week with my team. Like I make sure I talk to everyone in my company about how they're experiencing my leadership, what I could do better. Um, I'm very transparent. Some would say overly so. And, you know, as you ask me questions, I can answer almost any of them in great detail because everyone on my team knows how the business started, what has been driving us, what are, what are the core metrics and goals right now? Like, what are we trying to do? I believe that people need to really feel not only a connection to the mission, but have some emotional and psychological safety when they're at work. And I'm a leader that really tries to balance that with the bottom line financial business goals. So much for not having a vision. <laughs> I Just, figured it out. <laughs> that's good. You got there eventually, right? Yes. So Liz, you mentioned psychological safety for your team. Can you give us a couple of things or the way in which you bring that to life? I think it's rooted in a, um, in a really strong commitment to honesty and transparency. And when people start to work with me for the first time, I think this is true of anyone that's experiencing a new leader. 
they'll see or hear what I say and they'll be like, oh, what did she really mean by that? And the people who've worked with me the longest will then pull that person aside and be like, Liz means what she says and she says what she means. There's, we're not sugarcoating. We're not walking around it. We're, we're saying what is true. So I have thought a lot about who we are as an organization, how that plays into um, how people work day to day, how they're compensated. So when people join Campus Sonar, first of all, they get a really good learning experience in the recruitment process. Um, we will proactively provide a lot of information to them about the job, what your day-to-day -day is going to look like. We offer reverse reference checks so that they can talk to people who their supervisor has supervised so that they can talk to potential future colleagues. So they feel like they have a good idea of what the job will be when they join. But then when they join, they see that we have documented our work philosophy. This is how we work. This is what work means to us. This is when we work. This is how much we work. This is you know, what work can look like if you want to be walking around and thinking or like dealing with your kids during the day. We have a written compensation philosophy of like, this is how we pay people. And this is when raises and promotions happen. And this is what our career progression process looks like. We have, um, there was another philosophy in there that I was going to throw. Oh, we have a, a written culture document of like, these are the four key culture, uh, components for Campus Sonar. And this is where we're focusing on improving right now. And this is where we know we still have a long ways to go. Uh, all of that is written and is living documents. So people understand, all right, this is what it means to, to work here. Um, and then regardless of how well or not well things are going, uh, we're a fully remote company. So a lot of our communication happens in Slack or in Zoom. There is a, a channel called CEO Corner in Slack where I will share like, here's what I'm thinking about. Here's where the business is at. Here's some challenges we might have. And if things aren't perfect, people know, and they know what we need to do to achieve it or to make it better. And they know what potential consequences are if that's not met. So even if I can't promise everything is hundred percent secure, people know what's happening, what the context is, what I'm doing about it. Um, and then things like continuing to have skip levels and allow people to speak directly to me about their experience and then show them that I heard them and make changes as we go. Uh, all of that, I think, contributes to, to psychological safety. Um, that and letting people show up how they are. So remote work really helps with that. But making it clear, you know, if you've got kids or if you've got a parent you've got to take care of or if you have a chronic illness, like we can figure out ways to talk through this as long as we're all showing up how we are. And that particularly served us well during the pandemic, but even after. Um, people have told me that they were afraid to talk about their kids in prior jobs because they'd be judged for being a parent. But we're the type of place that we're going to celebrate that there's a new addition. You're going to get a branded onesie sent to your house. You're going to have like, and there's a parent channel to talk about all the kids stuff in Slack, just letting people be who they are. But within that set of, and this is what we came together to achieve as a group. That's great. I, I think COVID changed a lot of that too. At least it I feel like, you know, all of a sudden we got to see into people's lives because the camera took us there and their kids showed up and the dog was in the background and they're in their bedrooms or kitchens. And um, I found that refreshing, honestly. Um, but but I'm, also, if they always want it blurred or fake background right. because they don't want you to know that, that's right. Like, that's, that's okay right. too. That's okay too, right? Yeah, I'm. Um, I I love all of those ways you bring that. Uh, you make that real. I have a question a little bit about. Um, so culture is how it really is, 
And how do you make sure that what you've written and talked about as a team is actually true in the daily lived experience? How do you check for that? And then also, because you mentioned uh, you're a company within a company, how much of what the larger entity company does or is or says influences, or do you have complete autonomy about how that happens? And by the way, yeah. I'm asking too, because departments on campus are nested within a division or a university too. So I'm thinking there may be parallels. Exactly. Um, so for culture kind of assessment, um, I do two specific things and I know there's room for improvement here well, uh, as well. So in skip levels, which is when I meet with everyone who doesn't regularly report to me, I will ask at least once, if not twice a year, what am I doing to uh, foster a healthy culture? What needs to be improved? Sometimes I will flip that question around and ask it specifically about an inclusive culture. So I'll ask it in different ways. And people have been very, very honest with me. And in 2021, I was getting very different answers than what I'm getting right now in 2023. So just those conversations mm-hmm. where people feel safe to tell me things. And then I go back and I yeah. review my notes from everyone I talked to that quarter and I see where things are going. But I also, uh, we get together as a company twice a year. Campus Sonar's employees call ourselves Sonarians. So we have Sonarian summits <laughs> twice a year. And um, every two or three summits, we will have sessions focused on culture where we'll pull out those culture statements, what we said we were going to do, what is still on it, and have people get in small groups and talk through it and report back. And uh, that is also really helpful in, in getting the feedback. And we started initially in 2021, I did a full culture audit with an external firm. Um, but I don't know that we're going to have to do that on a very frequent basis. And then oh, in the leadership team as well, um, I have two directors on my leadership team and they're consistently reporting back to me. Like if this is the culture that we want to foster, is this aligned? Is this not aligned? And it's top of mind for them in terms of being a division within a company. Um, we we take what of the corporate the parent company culture is good for us, which is um, a focus on. It's also a very human focused uh, parent company. So focus on humans, focus on community service, uh, focus on the mission, all of those sorts of things. That's good for us. We take what um, might not feel good for us, but we know is good for us, like a focus on compliance and uh, laws and regulations and those sorts of things and do that in a different way than I think most other, you know, 16-ish people firms in higher ed probably aren't doing. So some of that is put upon us, but we recognize it's for our own good. It's like the medicine that doesn't taste so good going down. But then we definitely do things a little bit differently than the parent company as well. And that is where I've had to learn where I have agency and I don't have to ask for permission. So we implemented a career progression and promotion process because we're largely a flat organization right now. And to retain people, they needed to see a way to move up within their roles. And my leadership team built it, presented it to me, and I brought it to HR and was like, we're going to do this. Sound good? And we were the first to do that sort of thing. I've now heard that other units in the company are considering something similar, but wanted to see us try it out first. There's also other things that are core to our culture and our values that show up very specifically different than the parent company. Um, And one of the little but big things I think about is our commitment to salary transparency. We always post a starting salary or a starting salary range with every role that we have. And our parent company doesn't, but we just do it our way. 
And I would go to the mat for that if need be. Um, also just the way we structure our days is very different, but at the end of the day, if I can show that what we are doing is helping us meet our business goals, which are generally financial and human or human resources retention, I'll get a lot of leeway. If mm-hmm. people start to see that we're doing stuff just to be like the fun division or whatever, mm-hmm. that's a different conversation, but it's always showing how it's aligned with goals. So if you can get agreement on the the outcomes and the goals, you get a lot of more room to actually decide the the mechanisms and the modalities. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I think that's a, an incredible point too for people to think about on campus. It's like, what's the outcome? How you get there doesn't always matter. Can be different. So Liz, before we depart ways, we've talked a lot about your leadership journey and um, how you got to where you are, your philosophy, and clearly putting in the work for a great team. What is it that you like to do for fun? I love gardening, specifically gardening things that are edible. So largely a vegetable (laughs) gardener. And then using all the stuff that I harvest in cooking and preserving. So I'm a bit of a a bit of a wannabe homesteader. And that if I have the time, which year to year this has changed, but I have the ability and have in the past grown all of the produce that we eat in a year. So I find that to be incredibly fun. I mean, what kind of, how much land do you live on? Uh, we're, <laughs> on 1. 6, a lot of land. we're on 1.6 <laughs> acres and it's a much smaller part of that that is cultivated. But um, we, I have 20 rows in a vegetable garden and about two thirds of those rows are 35 feet long. So I can grow a lot in that space. What's your favorite vegetable? Oh gosh, that is an almost impossible Whatever's in question. season. Right. So we're recording this in August. So a fresh tomato as part of a BLT in August and September is pretty fantastic. But I'm also at the point now where there are certain vegetables that I only want to eat if they're coming out of the garden. Like they're not good in any other place and fruit, fruit for that matter too. So like a homegrown cantaloupe is unlike anything you'll ever buy in the store. You are a foodie. I know this from reading a little bit about your background. And one of the things that you, I, I think I, I think is right, you tell me if I'm right, is you have mastered the um, travel tip kind of category, right? How to assemble points and mileage to go uh, experiment with this foodie interest you have. So do you have one really good tip for travel and assembling all these things to to go try these restaurants that people want to know about? Um. If you are going to participate in the consumer nature of capitalism, (laughs) make sure you are getting as many rewards for that as possible without hurting your financial position. So my husband and I have traveled um, to, I don't know how many countries at this point, and usually the flight and the hotels we don't pay money for because we're working through credit card bonuses or um, miles that are often not earned through flying or traveling. They're letting the banks incentivize us to charge up a credit card that we pay off every month, um, which then allows us to use our vacation budget on the experiences. And we're a big fan of fine dining restaurants and innovative chefs. So uh, it all came from a motivation that we really wanted to go to Vietnam. 
back in 2015. And when we looked at how long the flight was, we didn't want to do that sitting up. So it was all about how do we get there in a lie flat? And we figured it out and have been going ever since. Well, you mentioned you're an entrepreneur. I can already imagine the next uh, business you're going to start, which is consulting to help the rest of us figure out how to travel for free or whatever it is. However you call it's a it. pretty crowded space, so I will <clears throat> yeah, let other people yeah. do that. And it's it's really stressful. I've done it for like family members and friends, and I don't do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, um, listen, your your uh, experience and insights are just remarkable, and what you've been able to do with essentially a, an emerging, if not really are still a right new kind of category of work for higher education is remarkable. I didn't really know what social listening is. It makes sense to me why we need to pay attention to it. Your um, way of doing it with people in your company and through transparency and authenticity and all of the things you're trying to do and, and doing it within another company is just really remarkable. So thanks for your insights and what you're doing for all of us, helping us get smarter about uh, about social media and higher education. And I love your comment about um, restoring essentially public trust in higher ed as, as part of your purpose. So thanks so much for what you're doing and for today. Thank you. So, Lauren, are you ready for a little extra credit? Yeah, if we could talk about your MySpace account. <laughs> <laughs> or How your do you Finsta. know I even had one? Did you have a MySpace account? I totally had a MySpace account. I, didn't. I had no idea. What, did you? No, I didn't have one. <laughs> I mean, I think it was supposed to be for music. Maybe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you perform? <laughs> oh, I did not perform, but I had MySpace. What's the first social media account you remember having? Um, Facebook, I guess. I mean, Facebook. Now, I still have a Yahoo account, by the way. Nobody has Yahoo accounts. I mean, I have My Gmail too, but My yeah, exactly. I still have Yahoo, but I never had MySpace. I always had Facebook. Um, I don't have a Finsta. I canceled my Twitter. Oh. So how about you? What's a Finsta? Fake Instagram. Oh. Yeah. Is that a real thing? <laughs> yeah. My mother has a Finsta. Oh. <laughs> no, I'm no. kidding. Just because you were teasing me about my mother. <laughs> or um, your mother. I have Instagram, LinkedIn. Yeah, LinkedIn. I have yeah. a Twitter account. X. Yeah. Um, but I've never I haven't used it in yeah, I can't however many years. Reason. I just like the name and I don't want to give it up because I'm wife.com. Mm -hmm. Which felt like a really great Twitter name. What is or it? Or handle. They call it a handle. What is it? Wife.com. Huh. Like the future of wives. Like yeah. a different type okay. of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyways. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess we'll uh, leave it to people like Liz to keep us hip in the social world. Well, she's making me think I should get back onto X and see what's going on. I'm not doing much social listening myself. I probably need to, so... Maybe is MySpace still around? I can. It's not too late, is it? It's not too late. It's never too late. <laughs> All right. Until next time. Bye. Campus Confidential is presented by Compass Group, produced by Corey Insko and Jen Fisher, with your hosts Kelsey Harmon Finn and Lauren Rollman.